Hello, everybody, and welcome to Great Bible Reset, where we cover 100 classical authors, one every week, and we're looking, we're looking to apply the law of God in the Great Bible Reset as we study these authors. Now, my name is Oliver Woods, and today we continue the historical background of Saint Anselm, who lived from 1033 until 1109, going all the way back to the beginning with a hopefully about a 20-minute sweep of Western civilization. Now, the Norman invasion occurred in the very middle of uh, St. Anselm's life in 1066. That's a date that many of us are familiar with. And, and so we could call him the philosopher of this very tumultuous period. And I, I like to use alliteration as a memory aid. So we have, um, looking back in, into um, ancient history, we have five P's or five pods or categories of ancient history, and then, we're, and then we're going to have three P's in each of those pods as uh, representative people uh, for each of those eras. So what is the Great Bible Reset? We need to analyze every classical author, every era, and every nation in terms of its response to the law of God, because this is the only thing that's going to deliver us from the judgment of God, is a return to his law, a great reset in terms of his law. So we're looking first at the pagan era, of the three Greek philosophers, um, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who interrupted the era of Greek polytheism with its bewildering array of gods and goddesses, Apollo, Athena, and so forth, and, and so on. Where did this polytheism come from? Well, we need to remember the influence of Solomon, who reigned from 970 to 931 BC. The Greek city-states were beginning to coalesce or come together during this period uh, around 900 BC in the mountain valleys of Greece. And then Rome was founded uh, not too much later in 753 uh, BC. But this was the era of 1 Kings 434, during the period of Solomon's ascendancy, Solomon's obedience to God when he was blessed of God. And it says, Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now that would, you know, certainly have included the kings of Greece and Rome, which are, you know, right right next door there. Now sadly, Solomon fell from obedience. And so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, I will tear the kingdom from you. And the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. And actually in 1 Kings 11, it mentions three adversaries adversaries that were that God raised up to um, harass Solomon because of his disobedience. Hadad, Hadadezer, and Jeroboam. So when Solomon fell, Greece and Rome fell with him. Now Solomon had most certainly shared Genesis 4 with the Greeks. Uh, that passage where the sons of God, meaning the fallen angels, came down to the daughters of men who gave them giants offspring or nephilim offspring it says nephilim were in the earth in those days and and so greece perverted this whole idea of of, of uh, the nephilim and the giants into the greek demigods and there was a man named um Cleisthenes, um around the year 500 508 actually 508 bc who founded the greek democracy and at, at almost the same time the, Repub the Roman Republic was founded in 510 B.C. So this completes the first cycle of 500 years in Western civilization. 
And it's, it's interesting to note that every 500 years, there tends to be, as we look back into history, there tends to be a major event occurred. We have the formation of Greece and Rome here in about 500, and then we have the, um, the life of Christ, that, of course, at the year 0 or 31, and so forth. And then, you know, Rome conquered Corinth and Carthage in 146 B.C., which is another significant day to kind of keep in mind, 146 B.C. So this explains the chaos we find in America today because we, like Solomon, have departed from the law of God. And this is the theme of the Great Bible Reset. We've got to return to the original intent of the law of God, not the original intent of the, of the U.S. Constitution. Clichés and memes are not enough. You know, one nation under God is not enough. Uh, patriotic adoration of Mount Rushmore is not enough. God bless America is not enough. A constitution in every U.S. patriot pocket is not enough. The Pledge of Allegiance is not enough. Well, what is enough? We've got to go back to the original intent of the law of God as it's summarized in Exodus 20 through 24. This is the first section of revelation that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai in terms of the law of God. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, followed by three chapters of ordinances, and in one chapter, Exodus 24, of the covenant commitment that the people made to God in response. So, and one example, one simple example, is in Exodus um, 22, the first four, four verses, says if you steal one sheep you got to pay back two sheep okay in other words double restitution crime does not pay if you come to your senses before you get caught and you and you return that first sheep you only got to pay a 20 percent restocking fee and that's it um maybe like a one leg of lamb or something okay so that's an example that's just what we have to return to uh in, in, in the early the early colonies uh, were on that path but then we got sidetracked we got sidetracked in 1787. Okay, second P is the Prince of Peace. And here, of course, is the great, the ultimate great Bible reset. When the living word of God entered human history by his death, resurrection, and ascension, established his kingdom in history. And we're going to be discussing this in more detail with Pastor Raymond on Friday, in our interview on Friday. But this great Bible reset immediately came under attack with two other uh, P's in this in this pod, uh, Plutarch's Lives in Plotinus' Great Chain of Being. Uh, now, Plutarch lived uh, from 46 A.D. to 119 A.D., and uh, that's shortly after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Um, and Plutarch, Plotinus lived from 204 to 270. Now, Plutarch, he wrote just after Jesus, and he, and he put a kind of a happy face on paganism. He, can, he had, I think he had 24 comparisons of uh, comparing a great Greek and a great Roman. Like, for example, he compared Alexander the Great with, um, with uh, Julius Caesar. And this was to counteract, you know, the gospel, the, the gospel of the message of love and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus brought. Uh, Plotinus came along to give a pagan alternative. Now, uh, I mean, uh, Plutarch did, I'm sorry, Plutarch's lives. Now, Plotinus, rather... Okay, and I should just to mention one of the implications of this came centuries later. The New England Puritans introduced Plutarch into their curriculum at Harvard. It wasn't called Harvard at that time. It was called uh, the, the Log Cabin College um, around 1650, but without biblical analysis. 
and the the uh, the two Mathers, Cotton Mather and Increase Mather, pastors, they objected to this. They said this is going to pollute us. This is going to corrupt our curriculum, our Bible curriculum. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And sure enough, it took a, it took a while. It took you know till 1805. But the but um, that's when Harvard, the the uh, the faculty at Harvard went uh, officially Unitarian at that point. So these things matter. These things matter. Okay, let's go back to Plotinus now, briefly. He came in in the years that he he lived from 204 to 270, and rather than the creator-creature distinction uh, between God and his creation, of which we are all part, Plotinus taught a chain of being emanating down from what he called the one, the one in the place of God the Father. And then you imagine a bowl of water or something, and water, it overflows, and it emanates down into the next next level of the noose, which would correspond, I guess, to Jesus, to uh, wisdom. And then from there down to the archangels, and from there to the angels, and then the demons, and then the human soul, and then the material world. Okay, and we're going to look at the problem with that here in a minute. But um, this, and then came the patristic era of the Roman emperors, with their feet of iron and clay, going back to Daniel's image, in Daniel 2, the feet of iron and clay were Rome, the two emperors, the two, the two, um, there was the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire signified by the legs of Daniel's image. And then the feet of iron and clay were uh, this era of the, um, the late, the Roman emperors and even the Christian emperors. Now, okay, and we start out with Julius Caesar. He was a perverse megal, megalomaniac. And then came Augustus Caesar. In his claim of restoring the republic, and he said, well, if I'm going to restore the republic, i got to have some authority here. And so he was kind of an iron fist in a velvet glove. He was the ancient version of, uh, you know, you got to take my, you got to take my vaccines, but I need immunity. And he claimed to be the first among equals, but not really. Okay. Now, St. Augustine um, lived from 354 to 430. He was biblically sound, of course except for his use of Neoplatonism as an evangelistic tool. This led to a thousand years of monastic retreat from the world. There was no great Bible reset in terms of the law of God with Augustine, because he located the city of God out, you know, in the sweet by and by with his Neoplatonism and consequent amillennialism. And, and we had the, the hermit movement. Anthony the Hermit started this. He, he, took, he really took Augustine seriously. And he went out in the desert in, in Egypt, and he, and he locked himself up in a cave with just one little people. And he got somebody, apparently, to feed him. But people started to gather around Anthony. And, you know, it became a real colony. And, and then it spread. You know, it spread from Egypt out and out and out until this monastic ideal became the ideal. And uh, the ideal of uh, aestheticism and mysticism became the ideal. And one variation of that was Simon, Simon Stylites. This guy, Simon, he built a 60-foot pole, and he lived on it his whole life, up on the top of this pole. And somebody, I guess they hoisted up food or something. The real hero there was the guy who changed his bedpan, you know. But anyway, in spite of all this, this began the long era of Jesus ruling in the midst of his enemies, which we find in Psalm 110, and, and also repeated numerous times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, all of the Christian emperors demonstrate they too had feet of iron and clay. Constantine's Edict of Milan, 
In 313 AD ended the bloody cycle of persecution. Constantine lived from 280 to 337. And then the Roman Empire, well, Rome was sacked for the first time by Alaric, Christian barbarian, in 410. But the, the, the empire officially ended in 476 with the deposition of Romulus Augustulius by Odoacer. Uh, now, the, the Council of Nicaea occurred in 325, which defined the nature of Christ as being the same nature, not just like nature. Same nature, okay. But even the Christian emperors weren't strongly committed to the law of God. Constantine himself apparently murdered his his son Crispus, who was a great general, and his wife, I forget her name, and his brother-in-law. And uh, these were the feet of Daniel's vision, made of a mixture of iron and clay. Unity rather than truth was more Constantine's guide, guiding principle. All of the archaeological evidence we have on the Arch of Constantine, for example, near which is near the Colosseum, and all of his coinage suggests that he never really deserted the sun god Mithras. In many cases, the Gothic barbarians who sacked Rome, like Alaric, were more faithful Christians than the Romans. So there was there was really no great Bible reset in terms of the law of God um, here. Now I'm going to throw in a, a, a fourth P in this pod. No extra charge, okay. This would be Theodosius. He lived from 379 to 95. He was the last to rule a united empire. To give you another example, he ordered the brutal massacre of thousands in Thessalonica. In, in 390, because one one of his uh, tax collectors or something got got murdered or something, he took it out on, he murdered several thousand, nobody knows for sure, but several thousand people were gathered into the amphitheater um, under false, you know, expecting some great um, display of entertainment, and they started murdering them. And um, the, so Theodosius, uh, he was brought to repentance Via, he was excommunicated by Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, and was brought to repentance. And he was able to restrain the Goths when they appealed. See, the Huns came in. The, the Goths lived mostly north of the, the Danube River, north and east. And then the Huns started coming in, and they were terrible, you know, terribly ferocious. And the Goths, you know, got up, got pushed up against the, the Danube River, and they appealed to Rome, please let us come over, please let us come in. And it, We've got this area here. I think it's Dacia, in that area, and it's you know, and we can just live there in peace, and we'll, we won't we won't cause any problems. And so they let them come in, but they they took they had some really severe restrictions, like we'll take all your weapons, we we'll take all your children. So that didn't that would that didn't set real well. Uh, but then and then uh, finally they um, and then they would they didn't treat them very good. You know they didn't with no no hospitality whatsoever. They wouldn't let them buy food and that kind of thing. And so they really got the goss ticked off at them. Um, now his two sons, of the, as long as Theodosius was alive, he was able to constrain the Goths and be relatively friendly with them. But then his two sons, Honorius and Arcadia, Honorius in the west, Arcadia in the east, um, were the first emperors of the divided emperor. They were pathetically weak. And even though Honorius abolished the gladiatorial games, um, he murdered his loyal general, the barbarian, Christian barbarian Stilicho. You know, this is crazy. When the, and he didn't really, I, the way the gladiatorial games were abolished was some monk or priest jumped down in the arena and tried to stop one of the fights. And he said, this is enough. Enough is enough. 
And so the crowd got totally angry at him, and they killed, they murdered this priest or this monk. And then the next day, though, they, everybody repented, and, and, and they finally came and said, we've got to stop doing this. We've got to stop these, these barbaric uh, gladiatorial games. And they did. They did. But again, so they got rid of the Olympics. They got rid of the polytheistic temporal, temple worship. But there was no great Bible reset in terms of the, the law of God to replace these things. In fact, Honorius, he was kind of a, he was such a wimp. He, uh, he was kind of a chicken farmer. And he had chickens and stuff, poultry, right in his throne room. And one of his, uh, I guess his rooster was named Rome, called him Rome. And somebody came rushing in said, Lord, sir, you know, Honorarius, sire, Rome has fallen. And he, and he looked and, and uh, Honorarius Honoraria said, no, he's not. He's right there. He's fine. You know, <laughs> I mean, this, is, this, is, this is what these two guys were like. Anyway, along comes Justinian and um, in 527 in the Eastern Roman Empire, he married a headstrong, bloodthirsty prostitute by the name of Theodora. And he tried to re, he tried he, for for a short period of time he reunited reunited most of the empire. However, he banished his most successful general general Belisarius, and and um, got jealous of him and um, falsely accused him. But he 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 was he's also famous for making a compilation of Rome's ancient natural law codes. Rome Rome became kind of like us, except not as bad. You know, the, all of these laws accumulated over centuries. And so he, he uh, commissioned this guy named Trebonian, who was not a believer, to lead a, a, a team of about 10 men to consolidate and um, uh, bring together the laws and uh, eliminate duplications and that kind of thing. Okay, so here we have this Christian emperor who appoints this atheist Trebonian to organize the law code. So what could possibly go wrong there? Well, for one thing, the ancient Roman law was called the Ten Tablets. Where do you suppose that came from? Okay, back to Solomon, right? Uh, the Ten Commandments. And there were some, there were some definite uh, correlations between the law of God and, the, and these Ten Tablets. Um, the, the idea of uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, perfect justice. And then uh, the um, things like uh, due process of law was introduced uh, in, in the Ten Tablets. Things like if you, if you were the, uh, the defendant, if you were accused, you had to, for for thirty days. You could go out and on your announce on your doorstep. Anybody who witnesses can help me wit- as a witness. Please come forward. So that was due process of law. But there were some things that, that were not not good. They introduced things like um, the dominance, the absolute life and death rule of a father over their uh, their king, their their children, their family. So that so these things were not good. But what is so what does Tribonius do? He eliminates. The ten tablets, the, the things that were good from the law, from from uh, from Solomon, he eliminated that, and um, and kept the stuff that uh, was just natural law and, and was um, customary law and that kind of thing. Now, in, in the introduction, it sounds good in the election. In the introduction, he pays lip service to the law of God and so forth, but in, in actual practice, it, it's it, it was not it was no great Bible reset, and it was actually lost for a period of five hundred years until it was rediscovered in an Italian library in the city of Bologna. And it became almost worshipped like the law of God. Uh, but anyway, we'll get into that later. So then we have the patriotic era of the early Middle Ages from 500 to 1000. Uh, from the fall of Rome, uh, we have the early Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, and the late Middle Ages. So we call this the patriotic era uh, because um, it's kind of set the stage for the um, nation states that were to develop 
some centuries later. Then we have um, we have uh, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, and we have Alfred the Great, and then we have um, Saint Boniface, who was a great missionary to to uh, Germany, and then we have some great epic poetry or songs that were written during this period. Uh, Beowulf to celebrate, basically to celebrate the missionary activity of Boniface. We have the Arthur le- legends. We have the Song of Roland, which at the time of of of, uh, of Charlemagne. And then there's um, martial music is set to, uh, you know, Roland, Roland, and so forth. This kind of thing. So this set the stage for the nation states, which were to come a little bit later. Now, um, okay, well, under Charlemagne, Charlemagne tried to implement biblical law, but it was imperfect. You know, he maintained the Greek heroic pride model of trial by ordeal and trial by water and uh, things like that uh, that had persisted from the time of Homer and even even persisted into the 1800s. Uh, murderers, uh, under Charlemagne, murderers got off with a money payment while theft was punished by death. You know, this is like the opposite. It should be just the opposite. Taxation was oppressive due to Charles' emphasis on expansion by empire rather than evangelism. Which in this, you know, I, thinking about this, I think he 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 was kind of he fell into the same trap that King David did in numbering the people for for empire building. And Job said, David, we don't want to do that. You know, God will expand the kingdom by um, by evangelism rather than empire. That's what Job the general said. But David had went ahead and did it. And when David sinned, the people had to pay the penalty because the people didn't restrain David under the Hebrew Republic. So Charlemagne seemed to fall into that that trap of um, expanding his empire by by martial means. And um, taxation was oppressive. There was one report where a, a guy said, uh, you know, under when we were under the Greeks, we only had to pay one sheep for every hundred sheep. But under Charlemagne, we got to pay one out of every three. And when, it, when the, the count comes to take uh, my son to war, yeah, uh, we we have to we have to fill up the wagon with with uh, tools and equipment and weapons and and food and everything. And my son goes off to war, and my my bag my my wagon comes back empty with no son. You know, and that that was the complaint. So there was a certain amount of um, draft dodging during this era. People were growing weary of Charlemagne's wars. You know? So then finally we come in closing to um, okay Alfred the Great. He and his, some of his relatives came closest to the Bible ideal of restitution. But his great Bible reset was nipped in the bud by the Battle of Hastings in 1066, which was, you know, from a human perspective, was a disaster for Western civilization. And we're going to be getting into that in a whole lot of detail in in the future here. But we're now in the papal era uh, of the first, um, our first classical author, Anselm, uh, during the, the, uh, the year 1000 to 1200, or three centuries. Uh, we have Anselm, and these, these three, three men followed one another in succession. They didn't overlap. But we have Anselm, then we have John of Salisbury, and then we have Thomas of Aquinas, the 1000s, the 1100s, and the 1200s. And we call this the papal era because of the papal revolution that defines it as one of the, uh, the great 500-year cycles, um, one of the turning points in the history of the West. It came as the culmination of the Cluny reform, which started in 909, and we'll get into this in more detail tomorrow. But um, please check out our, um, you can support our, our, our effort uh, if you go to boomersalive.com. Uh, we have uh, supplements there, Michelin stars quality supplements, um, which, you know, even some of, the, some of our um, great um, 
uh, what would you call them, super docs on the on the internet that don't have this quality of supplement. Um, we got a you know a set of free uh, resistance bands just for visiting at uh, boomers-alive.com, and um, you can get my commentary on Exodus 20 through 24 at kingswayclassicalacademy.com if you want to follow this in in more detail. So uh, for now, we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.